Hi, I'm Julie Lithcott-Hames, the host of Getting In. I'm the former dean of freshmen at Stanford and the author of How to Raise an Adult. Getting In is a new podcast from Panoply, following a group of high school seniors through the college admission process. And right now is crunch time, especially for students applying early decision. You know, when you put it all together, it's a lot. I don't really sleep. I drink a lot of black coffee. But, you know, I'm, I'm stressed, but I'm, I could be worse. I could be bored. That's what you'll hear on the new episode of Getting In from Panoply. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of realsimple.com. We can likely all think about small ways our relationships impact our health. Our partner snores and disrupts our sleep, or your bickering over chores causes stress. But a number of recent studies show that relationship conflict can actually lead to more serious health issues such as heart disease, high blood pressure, and even early death. Joining me today to discuss this research and how we can ensure our relationships positively impact our health are Dr. Romani Dervasala, a licensed clinical psychologist who studies health, mindfulness, and relationships, and is the author of the upcoming relationship book, Should I Stay or Should I Go? And Dr. Tim Loving, a professor at the University of Texas, Austin, founder of The Loving Lab, which conducts studies on how relationships affect our physical and mental health, and the founder of scienceofrelationships.com. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Dr. Loving, I'd love to start with you. Um, and first, we have to just recognize your name and how it, how it correlates with what you do, because it's just awesome. You've studied how relationship conflict can lead to health problems. But I'm curious to know how you define conflict and what kind of indicators do you use to measure it? Yeah, the work that I've been most involved with has defined conflict based upon behavioral indicators. So rather than self-reports, which have utility in their own right, most of the stuff I've done involves bringing couple members into a laboratory having them independently identify some areas that they might have disagreements about or unresolved conflicts, and then afterwards, lack of a better term, baiting them into getting into the mood and having a discussion around those particular topics. And through that, we're able to video record them and go back later and look for specific types of behavioral indicators, affective indicators, nonverbal indicators, Basically, what do people do when they're having these types of discussions? So it's very behaviorally based. So it's not you're not hooking them up with, you know, heart rate monitors and some and devices that would measure like physical symptoms. It's more observational. Well, it's both. Right. And, and so it's through that those types of behavioral interactions and, and the stuff that I done, particularly the work I did at Ohio State there. While those interactions are going on, they're being recorded. Um, we're collecting blood samples. We're getting heart rate data. In the the primary study I worked on at the time, we went as far as to give the couple members wounds prior to their interactions, and we were able to look at the way the wounds healed afterwards. So it had it had the full gamut of stuff in there. 
So when you say you bait them to get to sort of elicit these responses in them, could you kind of walk us through what it would be like if we were at the lab watching this happen? The traditional method, and this isn't unique from the work that I've done in labs I've worked in or my own, um, a lot of folks use these paradigms as individuals will complete a form that would say list kind of 10 common conflict areas. So what to do with leisure time, kids, sexual behavior, levels of affection, housework, whatnot. And the individuals will go through and rate, you know, when these types of, when topics come up around this broad, broad area, how often do you tend to disagree? And they'll rate it on some scale. And then afterwards, what I or the researcher would do is take a look at these independently rated forms and identify a couple of different possible conflict topics. And that's done by looking at the ones where they both say, oh, yes, every time in-laws come up, we're at it, right? A hundred percent of the time we disagree. And so, you know, that's going to probably lead to a pretty good conflict. But you can also identify those where one partner might say, say, leisure time is a high conflict area but the other one doesn't rank it highly at all. And so those can also be quite useful into getting people, how should you say, in the mood. So once (laughs) you figure out what would be the right areas that look like they might induce some kind of conflict is we would sit down with them and say, okay, well, uh, I'll I'll say Jack and Jill. It's like, okay, Jack, I I see here that you rated in-laws as being something fairly highly as conflict-inducing. Can you tell me what you were thinking when you rated that? If I was at your house and this topic came up, um, what types of things would I see or hear? And after a few minutes, you might then turn to the partner, in this case, Jill, and say, well, you've heard what Jack has to say. What do you think about that? Um, And you try to go back and forth a little bit to make sure that it's something that they both have pretty strong feelings about. And then once you feel like you've identified a few areas, okay, well, what I want to do now is I want to leave the two of you alone to have this conversation. I realize you've probably talked about it many times, but sometimes couples find when they have nothing else to do but sit and focus on something, they're able to come to resolution. I I don't care how you respond. We just like you to do it in as natural way as possible and go from there. And then what do you observe, generally speaking? Is there, can you give us an idea of like when you've left the room and you're sort of just watching them, is there, does it run the gamut from screaming and sweating to something less serious? It can run the gamut. I mean, in the work that I've done, the the couples that come in are not generally highly distressed couples. I mean, these are folks who are are self-selecting to come into a hospital research unit participate in a study over a 30-day time period, have all their, you know, everything recorded. And so we'll say it is a bit of a select sample, although I know folks who are able to recruit distress samples and they get far more intense. And so the types of behaviors that we're traditionally looking at would be kind of small telltale signs of, you know, poor conflict negotiation skills. Everything from stuff that indicates contempt, so eye rolling or sneering or some of these nonverbal types of behaviors to kind of more active types of negative conflict negotiation strategies like withdrawal or shutting down a partner, criticizing a partner, these types of things. And the ones that I've done, I have, I mean, folks might raise their voices on occasion, but you have to recall there are cameras around and we have nursing staff around and whatnot. So they're not necessarily reaching what you might see in their actual homes. But the, the scale is still fairly similar in the fact that individuals who are a little bit more negative in the lab tend to be a lot more negative at home. And so it's fairly systematic there. 
Dr. Devasala, you've written a lot about how being in a stressful or toxic relationship causes us to devalue ourselves. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this has an impact on our physical health and our mental health. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two levels there. One is that relationships are often about patterns. You know, as Dr. Loving was indicating, that these are sort of patterns of how you manage conflict and how you talk to each other. And when a person is in a relationship where they're not being heard, where they're chronically devalued, again, a lot of my work is on relationships with a narcissistic partner, that starts taking a toll on a person who starts engaging in things like self-doubt. I must not be enough. And then that starts getting associated with other clinical indicators, things like starting to feel depressed. Uh, drops mm-hmm. in self-esteem. And those things can have a direct effect because we know, for example, when a person is experiencing major depression or even symptoms of depression, there are changes in sort of their immune functioning and their endocrine functioning that really do cause wear and tear on the person. Secondly, however, through this toxic relationship, you are likely devaluing yourself more day after day after day, just basically almost having your very experience and your very worth denied on an hourly basis. So why would you go to the doctor? Why would you even bother to work out or eat healthy? Because you just don't value yourself. So why, why even take care of you? And it becomes almost a manifestation of this larger issue in the relationship. And what you'll still slowly start seeing people do, and I'll often see this, for example, in my practice and even in some of the interviews we've done for the research we do here. I'm a professor at Cal State uh, Los Angeles. We see that the sort of there's a gradual health erosion, almost like they stop becoming stakeholders in their own health. And we'll see things, for example, like weight gain over time, or even just a shift in their labs, like they're just eating more poorly. So there'll be increases, for example, in cholesterol and whatnot. So it's a slow burn, but it's a slow toxic burn, because the slower the habit comes on, the harder it is to break. So it's almost impossible if you think about what kinds of negativity is stirred up in a relationship that's chronically toxic. It's it's almost impossible to stay healthy in a lot of ways. I mean, you'd have to have a lot of awareness and a lot of help staying remaining physically healthy if, in fact, you were in a relationship that was destructive. Absolutely agree with that. I think that a lot of times you'll hear people talk about health, that the keys to health are getting enough sleep and making sure you eat healthy. I would honestly say that having a healthy relationship may be one of the key predictors of remaining healthy because it is so knit into the day-to-day of our lives. It's a key source of support. And and it slowly also becomes, uh, raises issues around identity, sort of how you view yourself. And if you are in a space where you're being chronically devalued, again, that's going to extend to your behavior, how you even conduct yourself in the world workplace, with friends, with family, and then certainly with how you take care of yourself. So again, it is a, it's not only a direct effect. And if you look at the research of people like Janice Keekholt-Glazer, who's done immunologic research on this, we see the direct immunologic destructiveness of a, of a bad relationship. Dr. Loving's work is also showing that. But it's also this indirect pathway, and it's the indirect pathways I'm interested in, is that how does this affect a person's behavior? If they're no longer taking care of themselves and engaging in the day-to-day habits, the day-to-day day prevention, again, over the course of a lifetime, this gets, this gets to be very destructive. And the fact of the matter is, the more toxic the relationship, the harder it is often to get out of it. So what do we know, both of you, about what the health benefits of being in a positive relationship are? I mean, what do we, you, you just spoke to some of them, but I want to know, I've always read and studies confirm that 
in general, married people are more healthy than unmarried people. But there was this new study I just read from Brigham Young that suggests it's just really happily married people that are much more healthy, that there is a there's a way in which if you're just kind of satisfied or even a little bit ambivalent, you don't get those same health benefits. Is that something that you both have found in your own work? I, I certainly have because I think that they, may, they make a key indicator. I'll be honest with you. When people come up to me and say they've been married 50 years, before I say congratulations, my first question is, how's it been? Because I think that we, it's, marriage is not simply a marker for health. Healthy marriages, respectful marriages, those are a marker for health. And there are a lot of mechanisms by which that can get enacted. Again, my interest is in behavior. And so in terms of how the health behaviors within a relationship. And when you're in a healthy relationship, there is that, again, the health benefits of having a mutual reciprocal relationship where there's a healthy back and forth, there's support during difficult times. And in that way, a healthy marriage becomes its own stress management tool because your partner becomes a sounding board. Your partner becomes somebody who looks out for you when those times are tough and supports you and says, hey, it's time to go to bed or here's a healthy meal to eat. Your partner makes sure you get to the doctor or helps you after an illness in terms of recovery. So in a healthy marriage, there's so many benefits from the prevention end all the way to the back end when something's gone wrong and you need care when you're recovering. Dr. Loving, have you found similar results in your research that it, you have to have a, a pretty excellent marriage to see all of these benefits? It's not just the fact that you have been committed to someone for a certain amount of time. Right. I mean, yeah, checking that that box on the census forms and whether or not you're married isn't, it's going to tell us a little bit because that co-varies with a lot of other stuff. But by and large, it's really about the quality of the relationship and the way people treat one another on a day-to-day basis. And I think what we were talking about earlier, there's something about an importance of having a, a consistent, reliable expectation that your partner is there for you through thick and thin. And the Brigham Young study, I believe, and, and I've seen a little bit of the media reports about it, um, when they're talking about an ambivalent relationship, we often think of ambivalence as kind of like, eh, I just don't know or whatnot. But what they're really getting at here is a relationship that might have a lot of positives, but also has a lot of negatives too. And if you go back to some of the very first empirical studies looking at the links between, say, marital interaction and conflict and health. The, the, the classic paper in the field was titled, Not Being Nasty Matters More Than Being Nice. Hmm. So we know when there are these types of negative behaviors in there, it can undermine what might many times look like a positive, fulfilling type of relationship, but it's not consistent. It needs to be there consistently. We need to know that our partner is there for us and is going to respond to us and is a source of support. So what about all of the kind of middling? I mean, I, I think that there's a whole middle there range of issues that come up in long-term relationships that aren't quite, you know, they're not at the level of, at all of abuse, whether emotional or physical, but they're just kind of annoyances, small stresses. You know, I've done many podcasts about the division of labor and how those kind of questions in a household, in a marriage, especially with children, becomes a refrain and gets people really irritated with each other. I guess I'm still trying to kind of figure out what is the level that of distress that we need to get to before it starts to really impact our health and our sense of self. 
You know, I would argue that that level of distress is very subjective. You know, obviously for different people, they're going to be able to tolerate different things, you know, looking at the same situation. Two people will see it differently. I do have to say that when the, the level of distress starts pulling a person out of their life, in other words, they're distracted at work, they're distracted in parenting, they're not able to keep up with their responsibilities, they report that they feel anxious and sad much of the time, or they may even be turning to coping strategies that are definitely not healthy, such as drugs or alcohol. So, I mean, I think that when it turns like that, it's definitely getting to the point of a tipping point. But that's even a little more extreme. I think, again, it's a person's subjective report. And I really love the things that Dr. Loving is saying that in, in that sense of it's really showing those things like that contempt and that anger, that kind of relationship conduct. Like, listen, every human relationship every single day is going to have bad days. And we know that when you're dealing with these sort of m- these midstream, as you call them, relationships, it's communication, it's being mindful, it's being present. All of those tools go a very, very long way to constantly check in with each other and be aware aware that this relationship is probably one of the most important things in your life, at least in terms of, in terms of everything, but certainly in terms of your health arsenal. But I do think that when the distress, when the discomfort, and even when this so-called ambivalence starts making you say, wow, I'm, I'm not comfortable, this doesn't feel good to me, you're starting to hit a tipping point. And I think that that's when people need to pay attention because it can start turning south in terms of someone's, in terms of someone's health. Dr. Loving, do you have any thoughts on what that tipping point might be? Um, I mean, I, I agree. I think that that tipping point is going to be subjective and it'll be a at a different point for different people. And this is where folks having somebody they can they can talk to, whether it be a clinician or a strong support network or whatnot, and help them process and kind of make sense and meaning of the types of things going on in their relationships are going to be very, very critical. We all have different expectations uh, about the way our relationships are going to function. And so one person's ambivalent relationship to another person might seem quite fine given where they've come from or what their background is. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's good for them, but where that tipping point is for different people will be highly subjective. The other thing is I think we have to always remember it's not about conflict per se. It's not about arguments or whatnot. Those are normal parts of any healthy relationship. It's about how we manage ourselves and treat one another when we're having those types of discussions. If you're going into an argument with your partner and you feel your heart rate amping up because you know it's gonna be a battle and you're starting to think about what your counter attacks are gonna be and so on, I'd say that's a pretty big tipping point. But it's another thing to say, all right, we're going in this is something we're gonna have to deal with, but I know that I can count on my partner to be respectful of me and to me, and I know that I can go ahead and do the same, then those are gonna be the relationships that are gonna fare much better. Are there, in your research and the, and the work, Dr. Loving, particularly that you've done as you've studied couples in your lab, are there specific words, actions, things that partners should avoid when they're speaking to one another to sort of res- make sure that things don't escalate to the point where they are then devaluing their partner, that they are, I mean, I'm sure there are obvious things like you don't want to criticize too harshly, you don't want to be um, belittling, but are there, what is the takeaway sort of for the couples who are listening to the podcast when they're at home having a disagreement after dinner that they can take with them to sort of, you know, move forward more intelligently and kindly in their relationships? 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 the first part of that is just what you're saying. There are the very obvious things that I think anybody recognizes in terms of being nice to our partners, right? Not attacking them, not looking at all their behavior as a sign of who they are as a person, but being open to the fact that different contexts and situations cause people to do things that might be out of character, giving the benefit of the doubt in that regard. Taking a partner's perspective is critical, understanding how our behaviors affect them and are interpreted by them. And I think most folks get those. Now, the extent to which we allow them to guide our behavior in the heat of the moment, that's going to vary, um, right, as far as it goes. Right. But time and again, perhaps the one of the most critical telltale signs of a relationship that is facing issues would be what we call the demand withdrawal or avoidance pattern. And so not engaging with a partner or shutting down a partner, which is essentially rejecting them in the relationship, saying, I'm not going to talk to you about this. I'm, I'm shutting this off. This is your problem. It's not my problem and so on. When people feel rejected, all sorts of defense mechanisms start bubbling up that cause us to either lash out or do other types of things, engage in kind of self-harm types of behaviors. And so I think being open to the fact that we always need to engage and talk through things with our partner and trying to shut it out is really saying, no, you're not important enough to me for me to go ahead and have this conversation. You might think it doesn't matter. I clearly do because I'm bringing it up and being open to those discussions, I think, is key. And Ramani, would you agree with that? Is that I, in your ex- clinical experience what you've found? Absolutely. Dr. Loving is a genius. He, he nailed it. It is very much that, that demand withdrawal pattern that, again, I also have, you know, I also get to see this, you know, doing direct couples therapy. And it is, you know, it, it's, it's also alternately sometimes even been termed stonewalling or defensiveness. You just put these walls up. And it is, I don't think sometimes what even when it's happening, people are aware of how hurtful that is. And it's not just one time. It, as it happens more and more over time, the person in the relationship who's often the recipient of that almost feels as though their entire experience is being denied. And that kind of cutting off really does have long-term health effects, just in terms of what it's doing to a person's identity and just sort of sense of who they are. And basically, somebody saying, I'm not going to listen to you. You don't matter. And if you don't matter, again, that's going to extend to how not only how you view yourself, but also to how you treat yourself. And honestly, I wish we had seminars in high school and in college that literally teach young people about how these communications can hurt and how to do this more appropriately. And of course, in my practice, in my work, and certainly in all my work on and on narcissism, this tool doesn't always work, is mindfulness. That if couples could take that moment, that extra breath they take before speaking, to take the time to listen, to understand how important it is to cultivate this relationship, that we, we'd, we'd probably see some better benefits. But unfortunately, we live in a very busy world right now. And, and I think relationships are taking quite a toll as a result. Finally, I just wanted to talk about sex and how physical intimacy plays into the health of relationships. We know that relationships that have, you know, where partners have a nice sexual relationship are, are usually happier and I would imagine would make for healthier couples. Is that your experience, too? And what effect does our sex life have on the health of our relationships? 
Well, I mean, sex matters. And, and, for, and for most married couples, they're having sex because there is a sense of connection. So it ends up becoming sort of a sign that they want this intimate space. And it becomes a place of closeness, connection, communication. Sex is good for us. I mean, it's healthy for us. The sort of release we experience, the physical contact, it's good. I mean, sex is good. Now, there's, are there, is there a subset of couples out there who are having a lot of conflict and also um, having sex? Sure. But is that the norm? Absolutely not. So to me, when I see a healthy sex life between partners and it's, and it's good and they, and they want to have it, that's a good sign for relationship health. And you will sometimes, though, here, and I, will, I have observed this where, you know, I'll have clients tell me that, you know, I actually do crave her or crave him sexually, and I like having sex with him, but I'm really angry right now, and I don't feel like being in that intimate space. So once again, it becomes a sign, and I think that, again, the busyness of the world, especially in couples who have young children and lots of responsibilities, it's a very easy thing to offload and sort of forget about. And it feels like it's time consuming or they can't get the privacy. And I think sex is great. Even if you can't get all the way there, touch, contact, hugging, kissing. I mean, those are the kinds of things that become those sort of meta communications that ease the the talk. It's not all words. Couples have the luxury of other forms of communication too. But I think sex is critical. And I think, again, it often gets lost in the shuffle, but it's a good sign. When I see healthy sex and happy sex, I often do see healthy relationships. And Dr. Loving, your thoughts? I agree 100%. There's a reason that time and again, it's not the quantity of sex that seems to matter for couples' overall well-being and happiness. It's the, the satisfaction with the sexual relationship because that is so wrapped up into everything else that's going on within our relationships. It's, it's both kind of helps contribute to how we feel, but it also serves as a marker for how things are generally going. When we think about the essential ingredients to good health, how high would you rank being in a nourishing, positive relationship? We spend so much time in the gym and making healthy food choices and going to the doctor in the name of our health. If we put that kind of effort into our relationships, knowing all we know from the research on how beneficial this is for our health, we would all be, A, a lot more happy in our relationships and perhaps have healthier relationships, but we also have healthier bodies. I think we don't have enough of this conversation about how important it is to cultivate and maintain our relationships. Often the people we love are the ones who get the end of us, Mm. the last of us. They don't get our attention. And if we sort of flip the paradigm and say, wow, you know, this is this where my heart is, is really, you know, where I I should be putting my attention because this is good for me. It's good for that other person. It's good for my family. And and by extension, then it starts becoming good for everyone around you. I just think that we don't focus enough on relationship health. So instead of going to the gym for an hour, go for 45 minutes and throw that extra 15 minutes at your partner. Dr. Loving, do you have a response to that? Um, Yeah, I mean, I I think this has been empirically established pretty well now that if you take a look at the the health consequences associated with good, satisfying relationships and and clearly our um, romantic relationships are a big piece of that, they are as important, if not more important, than a lot of the known risk factors for poor morbidity or mortality, things like smoking and obesity and whatnot. Healthy relationships relationships that we nurture, that we put time into, that we know where we can count on people and we're there for others at the same time, are one of the single most important factors contributing to our overall health. Thank you both so much for being here today. This was a great conversation. Thank you for having us. 
Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If you have a domestic quandary and would like to be a guest on our show, or if there is a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel, and our engineers, Henry Malofsky and Sam Dingman. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love. Love.